Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to the Mikra A Kodesh Holy Convocation Series. I'm the author, Torah teacher Arl bin Lyman Hanavi. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. The written commentary that we are going to be studying today was updated on October 1st of 2006. Let me read an opening verse for you. This is actually my theme verse for the Mikra A Kodesh series. Leviticus 23, verse 1 and 2 reads, quote, Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel the designated times of Adonai which you are to proclaim as holy convocations are my designated times. Vaidaber Adonai el Moshe lemor, daber el b'nei Yisrael va'amarta alehim. Today we're going to be talking about the holiest day in the calendar that God gave to the Jewish people. We're going to be talking about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, or as it's truly named in the scriptures, Yom HaKippurim. We say Day of Atonement, but truly the Hebrew suggests Day of Atonement, as we'll find out from a reading of the text of Leviticus 16, that actually there is an atonement for Israel, but there's an atonement for the high priest, and an atonement for God's holy sanctuary. So truly it is the Day of Atonements. Let's read the relevant passage found in Leviticus that's going to um, set us up for our study today. Leviticus 23, verses 26 through 28 read this way, out of David Stern's version, quote, Adonai said to Moshe, the tenth day of this seventh month is Yom Kippur. You are to have a holy convocation. You are to deny yourselves, and you are to bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. You are not to do any kind of work on that day because it is Yom Kippur to make atonement for you before Adonai your God, end quote. This particular study is a quite lengthy study, I must confess. The written notes alone number 25 pages. And so for ease of study, according to the written version, I've broken this particular study into 13 sections. Let me read those for you. They all serve as my contents. And then we will go section by section and study this particular holy day. The contents include, number one, 
the introduction. Number two, Ola. Number three, Mincha. Number four, Shlamim. Number five, Chata'at. Number six, Asham. Number seven, Apologetics Part One. Number eight, Apologetics Part Two. Number nine, Talmudic Quotes. Number 10, Scriptural Quotes. Number 11, Yeshua's Bloody Atonement Sacrifice in Leviticus 17.11. Number 12, Leviticus 18.5, Torah Observance Equals Eternal Life, with a question mark after the word life. And then number 13 will be my conclusions. Don't worry that there are unfamiliar Hebrew words to you if you've never heard them before, such as the words I was mentioning earlier, Olam Mincha, Shlamim, Chata'at, etc. When we get to those particular sections, I'll explain more what the Hebrew terms mean, and, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll all share in the understanding together. Let's start on the top of page 2 with the um, introduction to our study. And um, what I've also done is that this particular study on Yom Kippur actually has in part already been presented to both my reading and my listening audience. That's right. Many of the notes that we're going to be studying today in Yom Kippur have already been looked at in the Torah portion at Parashat Achaimut, after the death, which the address being found in Leviticus uh, Vaikra 16, chapter 16 that is, verse 1, through chapter 18, verse 30. So you're always invited to um, go back and look at previous studies that I've done. I always make the written notes available on the website at graftedin.com, along with the complimentary audio versions of the Torah portions, or the uh, Torah studies that we do. So if you recognize some of the information in the Yom Kippur study, it's because you've seen many, uh, or much of it, I should say, uh, many quotes uh, relevant from Parashat Ahraimut. As well, I'm going to pull some information from uh, Parashat Vaikra, which was the very first parasha going into the book of Leviticus itself. And then finally, I believe I'm going to pull some information from maybe one more study. Uh, there will, of course, be new information in this particular study. I don't simply um, piece together uh, completely uh, older studies and put, the, put you know, present them as one new study. That's not what I do. I actually do sit down and uh, put together brand new information. So, um, if you hear information uh, from previous studies, don't be alarmed. Repetition is a teacher's best tool to get the point across to a student. So, I use it quite often. Let's get going. This first section is entitled, The Introduction. With the arrival of Yom Kippur, keep in mind that we as students need to remind ourselves that God has been preparing us all year long for this particular holy day. How so? Well, many students of the Bible may or may not be aware of the fact that the daily weekly and monthly sacrifices that were offered throughout the Torah all actually pointed towards the Yom Kippur sacrifice which would take place once a year. Yom Kippur is a very special day with a very special um, set of uh, rules and obligations that Israel was to walk into. And so all of the the, again, the daily, monthly, the daily, weekly, monthly sacrifices pointed towards the Yom Kippur sacrifice, and then the Yom Kippur sacrifice itself pointed, as we know, uh, using Christian hindsight, 
towards the heavenly sacrifice that was to take place on earth when Yeshua would offer himself as the sacrifice for sin. So, a Yom Kippur um, study uh, that we're take, that we're undertaking today must be done with the uh, understanding, of course, that the heavenly altar has already seen the shed blood of the spotless Lamb of God, namely Yeshua HaMashiach. Every earthly Yom Kippur pointed towards that single uh, sacrifice that Yeshua would bring and offer of himself, uh, namely as he stepped into the heavenlies and presented himself to the Father. But the interesting fact is that the Yom Kippur on earth takes place in the fall part of the year. It does it not. That's right. It always takes place in the fall part of the year. That's how God designed his calendar. And yet, on earth, the fall festival of Yom Kippur has not seen its fullest and most complete fulfillment. Even though Yeshua was and is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We know this to be true. But if we study the details of Yom Kippur, we'll find out that it's not a lamb. It's a goat. In fact, there are two goats presented on Yom Kippur, along with the bull um, that Aaron brings for his own family and such. The, the, you know, the bull that the high priest is supposed to bring. Uh, besides the Leviticus passage of 23 that I just read, which really just give you the, gives us the logistics of the timing, uh, you know, the dates and some um, minor um, requirements to go along with each festival, Leviticus 16 uh, from where we're going to pull our information from Parashat Achremut, is actually dedicated entirely to the Yom Kippur service, and it, from there we'll gain a, 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 a more detailed look at this at the uh, at this particular um, festival or this particular feast day. Um, but my point that I'm trying to make is this: Yeshua fulfilled perfectly and with exacting detail all of the first four spring festivals: Passover, Hamatzah, which is unleavened bread. Um, uh, um, Omer Rishit, which is the uh, first sheaf. And then um, we had the Shavuot, which is Pentecost. Yeshua fulfilled these festivals perfectly. Yet in his fulfillment, he also gave us a down payment, as it were, of the things that are to come. Recall Paul's cryptic message where he talks about that these are a shadow of things yet still coming. So the earthly Yom Kippur that takes place in the fall is a foreshadow of that which would take place sometime in the future, and according to God's um, uh, plans and the way God um, has had Yeshua step into these uh, uh, prophetic feasts literally, well then we can expect to see a literal Yom Kippur that mimics the earthly one, and that we need to have Yeshua step into a Yom Kippur, a corporate Yom Kippur, that takes place on in the fall part of the year. Are you following me so far? In other words, even though the temple has been removed from um, our access at the moment, and that's due to our sins, of course, and even though Yeshua now sits at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies interceding for us, the Torah seems to suggest that the fall festivals had not, have not yet seen their fullest and final um, actualization. We can still expect a, a corporate Yom Kippur, to be sure, all of Israel has not yet received their Messiah. And so even though the down payment has been made, as it were, we do not see the corporate aspect um, before us. Israel knows it today. They know that there is no peace on earth. They know that there is no um, 
universal acceptance of God and his name has been prophesied in their own uh, prophets and their writings. And for this reason, many within Judaism today reject the notion that Jesus is the fulfillment of this festival because they're still waiting for a corporate atonement. And you know what? They're right. They're right. It's not that Jesus did not fulfill um, the festivals like he was supposed to. The truth is that he didn't fulfill the festivals at the time that we were expecting. Namely, he didn't um, step into the corporate aspect when when we thought he was going to. Instead, at his first coming, he fulfilled what we kind of could say is the personal and and, 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 uh, um, intimate aspect of this coming kingdom of his. The kingdom is with us, but the kingdom is mostly inward. It's within us. But one day... As we look forward with anticipation to this Yom Kippur that God will pour out on the nation of Israel and the supplications and the prayers of the people will be heard and their hearts will be softened and they will look on him whom they have pierced. One day, this atonement, this kingdom will not simply be inward, but it will be outward. Omain, Omain. So with that, we go into our study. Of Yom Kippur, and with the arrival of Yom Kippur comes another one of the central aspects of our relationship with our holy God, and that's atonement. Remember how we've talked about this theme over and over again through our Torah studies. Through our Torah studies, God is in the business of reconciliation. God is in the business of repairing the broken relationship that we started way back in the garden. Our first ancestors ate the forbidden fruit, and from that point forward, the relationship has suffered. The relationship between God and ourselves. And so God set a plan in motion that would ultimately culminate in the redemption and the atonement of his people. That's right. He would buy his people back from the, the, from the, uh, uh, the clutches that sin has held us in. And one day all of this will impact Israel on a level that she has never, ever even imagined. Even though the words of the prophets are right here before us, she could not have imagined the level of atonement that God is going to pour out for her. Why is atonement so important to Hashem? Well, apparently ever since the incident in the garden, mankind has carried within himself the sinful propensity of of, of that first act of disobedience and consequently the sinful results as well. Because our hearts are sinful, then our actions are sin. Therefore, atonement becomes primary to God. Forgiveness, mercy, compassion, these are all elements of atonement. Our sin nature is in direct conflict with the holy nature of Hashem. God's nature is kindness, compassion, mercy, loving loving uh, 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 forget, forgiveness, and, 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 and all of these things that we read about. And yet, our sin nature repulses God. It, 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 God cannot, can, he, can't, he can't allow it. He can't dwell in it. The presence of sin cannot be in God's presence. They can't be in the same space together. They can't occupy the same space. So God sets forth his program, his divine plan of atonement. And so um, we need to understand atonement from God's perspective. Sin is our problem, people. It's not necessarily God's problem. He's not the one who, who, who made us sinners. He created us perfect. We are the ones who broke relationship. As a result, we can't fathom approaching him without first making making some sort of restitution that would satisfy Hashem's righteous 
requirement if we desire to be in the presence of God and all of us do if we would all admit it then God says atonement must be made his nature demands that there be an atonement for sin and for indeed sin cannot exist in God's sight now this word kippur right it connotes atonement or expiation most of us who study the bible are aware of the um of the implications of this word um we're going to talk more about kippur down in our study but now i'm just doing kind of an introduction and an overview related to this word uh kippur is the hebrew word kaporet now the kaporet is a noun and it's what we call the ark to the cover I'm sorry it's what we call the cover to the ark of the covenant you remember the golden chest that uh, contained um the uh, the tablets the, the the you know the pot of manna and Aaron's rod that budded you've all seen Raiders of the Lost Ark yes with you know Indiana Jones and such um that movie contained uh, what what seemed to be uh, Hollywood's um depiction of the ark of the covenant uh, fairly accurate i might add i mean it's it the, the bible does give us a description so shouldn't be too hard to try and figure out what the ark of the covenant looked like well the top or the lid if you if we're talking about a, th- a three-dimensional object a box you know each box has six sides a cube well the top of the box the lid itself is the actual caporet and um it's related to this word kippur and it's a fitting connection since the lid of the ark is where hashem spoke to moshe face to face and um the idea that God could speak with humans despite the sin that we are plagued with, the whole theme of mercy is implied within that conversation. Are you following me? Many Christians refer to this lid as the mercy seat, and that is a fitting title for this particular cover. Um, that's where God spoke to Moshe. Panim le panim, face to face. And the only way to speak to God is through his atoning device. And that's why the caporet is such an important feature in um, in this particular piece of furniture. This was also where, if you'll recall, where the blood of the atoning animal was offered once a year during the Yom Kippur service that we're going to read about in Leviticus 16. Um, it was here amidst the, 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 uh, the, the incense that the uh, the the Kohen Gadol the high priest was allowed once a year to enter in and to splash the blood on this particular spot as God had commanded. Now most students of the Bible have been taught that it was in this way, the, the, the you know the the sacrifice and the uh, ritual that we're talking about. It was in this way that the blood of the sacrifice, quote unquote, covered the sin of the person bringing it. Israel was in need of atonement, and God had already promised that if you walk into my um, festivals, then I will grant atonement year after year on an earthly level. Don't forget to remind yourself that this type of atonement was not complete. That is to say, it didn't take the worshiper towards the goal of of of, of um, being accepted by Hashem spiritually. It did, in fact, do its job in cleansing the flesh of the people. It served its purpose to cleanse both the worshiper, the sanctum that that God uh, um, had uh, had the people construct, and um, that was the job that it, it it performed. So it worked. 
um, in that sense. It, it did cover, as it were, the sin. It wiped clean the holy sanctum that that uh, that God had dwelled dwelled among. Popular Christian theology regularly teaches that this type of atonement only covers the sin. It doesn't allow it to be completely erased, and uh, that's kind of accurate. I mean, it's it's a little uh, um, what's the word I want to use? It's a little awkward to say it that way. Um, I mean, we, meet, we, we need to understand that sin is not simply earthly. Sin is spiritual. The stain of sin that covers our heart is something that cannot be erased by any earthly animal. It cannot simply be um, uh, wiped away with the mortal blood of the goats and the bulls and the, and, the, and the sheep that we brought year after year. The animals weren't designed to cleanse that stain. No. The stain infecting man's heart, the sin within the inside of us, can only be cleansed by a spotless sacrifice offered in the heavenlies on God's heavenly altar. That's the way God set it up, and that's why Yeshua had to be that sacrifice. The ones on earth obviously pointed towards this heaven reality, and as a result, they gained their legitimacy through their earthly counterparts. So, it is not the animals versus Yeshua. They didn't compete with one another because they were not designed to carry the same function. They complemented one another. The animals conveyed an earthly cleansing. Yeshua's atonement um, represents a heavenly cleansing and the two work in tandem. Okay? It is true that in a very simplistic way, this practice of bringing the blood to the sanctuary year after year was temporary. It did await its fullness when the Messiah arrived. And of course, when he died, he provided for us all that was necessary to satisfy God's heavenly altar. The blood had been spilt on earth by Yeshua, the sinless Lamb of God. And therefore, when Yeshua presented himself in heaven after he ascended then God's altar in heaven was also satisfied. However, again, don't lose sight of this fact. Yeshua's atonement, although it took place in the Passover season, it took place in the spring, it did not completely answer the Yom Kippur equation when it comes to the heavenly uh, reality that that God expects us to um, look for. Yom Kippur in the heavenlies, still needs to take place. Does this mean Yeshua has to die again? Obviously not. Okay. If you study the festivals, you'll see that they have differing um, aspects to them. In some strange way, Yeshua is the Yom Kippur sacrifice, and he already fulfilled it. But in another sense, and this is the paradox of scriptures, he did not yet fulfill Yom Kippur, because all of Israel has not corporately been atoned for. They have received the down payment of this atonement, done at the Pesach sacrifice that Yeshua instituted, and as a result, each individual Israelite can in fact receive forgiveness on both an earthly and a heavenly level because of what Yeshua has done. However, we do need to pray that God would be faithful to us and that we would be looking with expectancy to this once and for all uh, Yom Kippur that is to take place in the future sometime, where according to Paul in Romans chapter 11, all Israel will receive their atonement and all Israel will be saved. We don't fully understand it. God's ways are above our ways and we don't fully understand how Yeshua is going to walk that out. I do know for sure Yeshua is not going to die again. That's out of the question. He's not going to die again. But somehow, Yom Kippur needs to have its fullest... um, 
its fullest uh, uh, fulfillment, as it were, in the future. We're going to have to examine these details uh, at length later on. You might ask yourself these questions. If Hashem knew the temporal aspect of the sacrificial system, if he knew that the blood of the animals, the mortal blood of the uh, the sheep and the goats and the bulls and such, if he knew that it only served to cleanse the flesh, why did he institute it in the first place? Why not just send the Messiah from the beginning, skip all those elaborate middle steps? These are questions that people have. They are legitimate questions, and you know, it's not entirely unlike many questions that I hear from those most non-Jewish believers, i.e., Christians. And a few Jewish folks as well. You know, not every Jewish person knows his Bible the way he should. Well, in order to gain a fuller appreciation for the Yom Kippur ritual that we're going to be talking about, we should do a short study on the other types of sacrifices that did take place in and around the Mishkan, the, the, the tabernacle, of that time. Okay, So what I'm going to do for students is I'm going to go backwards into the book of Leviticus, and briefly study these korbanot, these offerings. Now I say backward because we're starting our theme study today in Leviticus 23, but we're going to go backwards all the way to the beginning of Parash, of um, of a of a Sefer Vaikra into Parashat um so that we can study the five korbanot, the five types of offerings that are introduced for us, because we're going to find that the Yom Kippur sacrifice finds its um uh what's the word finds its classification among one of these five and uh it's not something that's completely out there on its own with with no relevance to the other sacrifices it bears a connection to um the other five types of sacrifices so for this part of my study i am going to selectively use part of the audio from the commentary to Parashat Achimot. Okay, so bear with me as I bring in audio from the previous commentary. But before we do, I'm going to go ahead and call this part A since it's about 25 minutes or so into this commentary already. I can promise you we're probably easily looking at five parts, maybe six, to this particular study. So um, bear with me. It's going to be a comprehensive study and uh, we're just going to get as much out of it as we can. All right? Um, We'll go ahead and call this part A right now. When we come back, if you have the written notes, which, again, I always recommend you get them. If you have the written notes, we're going to start into the bottom of page 2 with the Yom Kippur um, study. We're going to start talking about the five types of offerings introduced at the first part of Leviticus, and that will propel us forward into a um, an apologetic section where we are going to attempt to answer some of the standard Judaic objections to Jesus being the fulfillment of the sacrifices and how in the world can we obtain atonement today now that the sacrificial system has been removed from our communities. We no longer have the sacrifices. We don't have a temple. We don't have the tabernacle. What are we going to do with these instructions that God has given to us here in the book of Leviticus? We're going to attempt to answer some of those questions, okay? So stay tuned. Uh, when we get back, we'll start talking about the five types of korbanot.